to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back, everyone, to the Primary Medicine Podcast. This is podcast number 68. I have a very special guest today. It's Eric Harvey. You're almost a doctor now. Almost, yeah. Thank you for having me. It's like one more year. Uh, He was my medical student during the COVID crisis. We had, I get six months then it happened, so he's back, and he's going to present two things, two topics, actually. Topic number one is we'll finish off the andropause treatment that we talked about last last uh, podcast. But number two, and more interestingly, he'll talk a bit about his experiences as a medical student, a third-year medical student uh, during the COVID crisis. I think it's important to know that what happened, I just talked to a fourth year, and you know their exams, it was really hard to do their exams. One of the exams is there was supposed to be physical examination done. And they had to do it virtually, and it was a nightmare. So I, I'd be very interested to see what how you experienced as a third-year clerk. But let's start with andropause uh, first. And maybe we you can remind the audience what andropause is a bit before we go with the actual treatment approach. Sure, no problem. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So just quickly to recap what andropause is, um, since you've mentioned that you've discussed it previously. So essentially, as men age, their testosterone serum concentrations decrease. And so, you know, it's hypothesized that this decline in testosterone is actually the cause of changing that's associated with aging. So it's very interesting. And so some studies have actually shown that hypogonadal men will have significantly lower hemoglobin, they'll have lower bone mineral density, muscle mass, and just poor general health compared to their counterparts who have normal testosterone levels. Yeah, it's it's, it's certainly a, a decline in, in health. And again, as I mentioned in the last podcast, it's associated with, with the decreased quality of life and increased mortality due to many issues, including the bone mineral density problem. The question is, so if it's an issue, if it causes poor quality of life, can we treat it? Well, this is an interesting question, and it's one that's a bit debated. Mm -hmm. You know, older men who have low testosterone and no organic causes other than age itself um, remains controversial. Conversely, men who suffer from hypogonadism as a result of hypothalamic pituitary issues or testicular issues, um, in this case, these individuals should be treated with replacement therapy regardless of their age. Yeah, so if, if you're dealing with primary or secondary cause, as you mentioned, treatment is always suggested. If you're dealing with actually late on, onset andropause, as we call it, as we talked about last time, there's a lot of debate. And we'll get to the benefits of treating these people a bit further down, and we'll go through some of the guidelines. What are some of the guidelines you looked at for, for make, helping you decide treatment or not? So for me personally, I went to -to UpToDate, which is a resource I know a lot of medical students use. Mm -hmm. And there I found the Endocrine Society Clinical Practice Guideline, which actually were recently updated in 2018. And they show that there's a potential role for testosterone replacement therapy. But it's important to note that um, this is to be done and evaluated on a case-by-case basis and ensure that the risks and benefits are thoroughly discussed with their patients before initiating treatment. So in ideally, you would want to treat individuals who have both symptoms and conditions of testosterone deficiency, and they're also having consistent and unequivocally low serum testosterone levels. However, on the other hand, you absolutely do not want to routinely prescribe the testosterone in older men if they're asymptomatic and have no con- conditions of androgen deficiency with the low serum testosterone. That's a very good point. If they have no symptoms, 
don't test testosterone because likely a lot of people in their 50s, 60s have low testosterone. But what's the point of treating it if they're, they're doing fine otherwise? What are some of the benefits of testosterone therapy, Eric? Well, one of the most clear indications for testosterone therapy is actually sexual function. It works best in patients who have more severe forms of hypogonadism, mm -hmm. and, but it does not work better than phosphodiesterase 5 enzymes inhibitors such as Viagra. So let's say somebody comes in and they, they co complain of poor libido and problems with their erections. That's where you may want to test the testosterone. And as what you're saying is pretty much that those people may benefit the most from testosterone replacement therapy, although it's not as good as Cialis. Though Cialis or the phosphodiesterase inhibitors don't help your libido. They do help your erections. Testosterone might help your libido as well. So that's number one. That's the big one. Sexual function is the big deal, and that's why you may want to treat somebody with testosterone. Are there any other benefits? So they discuss and up-to-date some of the physical functions. However, they talk about it in terms of significance with respect to um, the six-minute walk test. And there they show no, no significance, but an improved walking distance in all participants. So take it as you would like with respect to that outcome. So it's a bit unclear. I, I know that some people will, call, will treat men saying that they have a muscle weakness and they have a hard time going to the gym. They might treat them with testosterone therapy, but the benefits are quite unclear whether it works or not, as you were saying with those two tests they were doing. What other benefits would you have? Well, they separate vitality and cognitive function as right. two separate outcomes. Personally, I like to see it as one in the sense that cognitive function is not affected by testosterone. So it will not improve your cognitive functions. What's their definition of vitality? It's a good question. They say that it's an assessment of functional assessment of chronic illness therapy fatigue okay. scale. So I'm not even sure what they mean so by they're, that. So they're putting in mood and and other things in there. Yeah, so, so I, I guess that what, what has been shown in terms of vitality and cognitive function, the only thing that uh, testosterone seems to help is, is depression. And that's, again, unclear. Uh, I have actually seen people coming in with depressive symptoms resistant to, to treatment where, the, where we would add testosterone therapy and they might feel better. Whether it's a placebo effect or not, it's hard to say. But I've seen that done, and I've done it a couple of times to good effect. However, the evidence is not very clear. And in fact, she doesn't even support this, if I'm saying this correctly. So we're talking about kind of function, vitality, this catch-all term. So it might help that. What, what else can it help? I think uh, you just alluded to the fact that it can help with symptoms of resistant depression to mm -hmm. medication. Mm -hmm. And so there, you know, it's not necessarily first line. But if you have a patient who comes in and is suffering from depression, you've tried to use multiple lines of therapy and they also have some of the other symptoms and you can try and initiate a bit of uh, testosterone therapy and see how they respond from a cognitive or mood aspect. Yeah, response time does take a bit. It, it doesn't occur immediately. It, it might take up to three months. So you, if you do go that route, you, you have to stick with it and the patient has to stick with it as well if they're okay with, with trying testosterone. Most patients are okay with trying it actually. So yeah, that's, that's for depression. Uh, what about for, and this is interesting, this is something that when you talked about it before the podcast, I didn't know, but anemia, apparently it's it's a treatment for anemia in some in certain cases. Yeah, so I actually read that it improved anemia in patients who had both unexplained and unexplained anemia. 
And this is actually quite effective with the testosterone gel. And so it actually shows that the number needed to treat is only three, which is quite significant when you're looking at a statin, for example, where the needed number to treat, I think, is roughly 175. Yeah, yeah, it's three is, is very impressive. Now, it's again, it's important to figure out why they're anemic, but you do get a certain degree of patients who will have an explained anemia. You've, you've done all your tests. You made sure it's not cancer, right? That's the big big thing to rule out in, in men who are anemic. And if you do give testosterone, I guess it, it it makes their blood cells go up. But the question is, are you treating the number or the symptoms? So again, if they have no symptoms of their anemia, then you shouldn't treat. If they do, and again, that's, that's a bit of a challenge, then you do. But that was interesting. I, I didn't know that. And something that you can... You can think about it with patients where they have an explained anemia. Mm-hmm. So anemia is a good one. What else can it help? So as we mentioned in the introduction, bone density is a big one. In a study, it showed that within 12 months of the initiation of therapy, there was actually a significant increase in the mean lumbar spine trabecular bone mineral density. And also the estimated strength of the spine trabecular bone, uh, the lumbar peripheral and hip trabecular and peripheral bone all of which are supporting structures in the body and very important to maintain a healthy density and um, overall can lead to improved function. Now, they didn't do any studies looking at fractures. Did they like fracture um, frequency? No, so they just looked... It's interesting because it's... Sure, it helps the spine, it helps the hip, but it didn't actually do the, the important part, which is does it actually prevent fractures? I guess how would you really deal with this is is i mean it makes sense because you know women get osteoporosis after menopause because as they don't have estrogen and men whose testosterone levels are lower obviously have the same issue if you do look at the guidelines i don't think they would suggest though treating if they only have osteoporosis but it's nice to know that if you're doing this treatment that there's that advantage that maybe the fracture risk has decreased maybe we're still looking for studies the last one i i sort of read about and you didn't is there was a bit of talk that it might help with diabetes control. So that doesn't seem to be the case, unfortunately. So if I were to summarize, the big one is why. What's the big treatment? What does it help with? What's the big one here? The big one here is sexual function. Sexual function. Yeah. So sexual function, specifically libido or erectile dysfunction, consider giving it. Maybe consider initiating therapy in people with depression, men with depression who are resistant to treatment. Maybe if they have anemia considered giving therapy if they're symptomatic and bone density is improved by it but it's not a indication to start testosterone therapy does that sound about correct i would agree okay. yes so this is these are the benefits of the therapy but unfortunately with any type of therapy there's benefits and risks what are some of the risks uh, and the issue is that unfortunately we don't have very good studies whether these risks are theoretical or true but what are some of the risks here when we're dealing with testosterone therapy so um, what I found was that there, they say that there's an increase in coronary artery plaque. Okay. And this was actually measured by CT scans, and they noticed that there was an increase in non-calcified plaque volume. So this was in people taking testosterone therapy compared to people who are not? That's the way I understood okay. it, correct. Okay. Yeah, I wonder. So I remember in 2014, Health Canada actually put a warning out that if that testosterone therapy may be associated with stroke, MIs, and even... Um, pulmonary embolisms, and so on and so forth. But are there any studies showing that this is the case? 
There are some recent small studies that have found no association. Right. Um, but I guess they're too small to, to be, to be, you know, used, unfortunately. Uh, what does the, what does, what do the American guidelines say about this? So they actually recommend not starting therapy for three to six months after a cardiovascular event. And it is, however, contraindicated in severe congestive heart failure because there's a theoretical risk of fluid retention that could worsen it. So I get theoretical. No studies. It's it's a lot of theoretical things. And it's interesting it was done on non-calcified plaque measurements on CT. I didn't know that what that's what it was based on. But nobody really looked at actual rates of MI. And that's the important part. Just like the fractures. Nobody looked at fracture risk. Nobody looked at MI rates. So currently, what I would say based on this is, if somebody's had a recent MI or very high risk, perhaps don't give testosterone. But generally, it seems okay. Now, I would measure it to patients, but I don't think it's a reason not to give it if it's going to improve their life and the quality of life. So that's one thing. So cardiovascular risk, it may increase it, it may not, it's hard to say. What's another risk of this treatment? And I think this, the second risk is the biggest risk, I would say, uh, because I, I do deal with testosterone therapy in, in trans patients, and that's what we deal with all the time. So what is that one? So I think you're referring to erythrocytosis. Yeah. What is erythrocytosis for our listeners, Eric? So erythrocytosis is a abnormally elevated level of red blood cells in the body. Right. And so that can uh, thicken the blood and lead to uh, difficulties with perfusion mm-hmm. and uh, oxygen delivery to tissues throughout the body, um, as well as occlusion of small vessels. And so that's it's not something that you want in your patients. Right. So you, it's just the blood becomes very thick because of the red blood cell content. And when you look at erythrocytosis, what is the thing you measure specifically? Not the red blood cells, but or hemoglobin. What is it that you measure? So for erythrocytosis, you're going to be measuring the hematocrit. Exactly. And that's the percentage of red blood cells that are in your vial um, once it's been spun down. We'll mention that further down when we talk about tests that we need to do. Uh, when you initiate testosterone therapy. But generally, the cutoff, it, it really varies. I think you mentioned 48% somewhere. I have it as 54 I would say when you get to 15 and above, be weary because that's where the studies show that the theoretical risk of having a stroke or a thromboembolic event is quite much, much, a lot higher. Um, so remember 50%, maybe as easy as number two, remember 50%, you want to be below that. So we have, we have the coronary issues, the erythrocytosis. Number three is also a big one, but the evidence is not <laughs> very good on it either. What's number three? So when you're going to initiate testosterone therapy or hormones in general in men, you're going to have to be concerned about the prostate. Right. Well, Because there's theoretical risk of what? Prostate cancer. Yeah. Now, were there any studies done here? So there were some. Yeah. They showed that it would, the testosterone therapy would increase the serum PSA. Right. So prostate specific antigen to a small degree. In certain studies, it showed that only 2.5% increase or 3.4 nanograms per milliliter above baseline. And so here you would not want a PSA greater than 4.4 nanograms per milliliter. Because? Um, because this in theory, increases your prostate cancer risk. But did they actually study whether the prostate cancer risk increased? And that's not clear. So I would say, from what I understand, and let's see if you agree, Eric, because if somebody's dealing with 
active prostate cancer or high risk of reoccurrence, they should not currently get therapy. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. You should not. And um, we're going to talk about a talk about it a bit more later on with respect to a workup before be- beginning therapy. And we're going to look into more about this increased prostate cancer risk. Yeah. Well, when, when, when do you worry? Which numbers do you worry? What about BPH? Like, does it cause, does it worsen BPH or, or prostate size? So there's some studies that have shown that there's a correlation between uh, the testosterone therapy and uh, benign, BPH or benign prostatic hyperplasia, as well as sleep apnea and erythrocytosis, which we've already discussed. So having said that, whether or not these studies actually displayed significance or not is still up for debate. Yeah, I think I was reading a study where they looked at, because one of the first symptoms of BPH is it takes, it gets the weak stream, right? It takes you a bit of time to, to go to the bathroom and urinate. And they actually did, did compare that, which, which is, again, a specific useful comparison. Who, I mean, who cares if your prostate is big if you have no symptoms, right? Obviously, patients care if they have to spend three hours in the bathroom to, to try and, and pee. And they found no difference in people who are taking testosterone or not. So again, it does increase your PSA. It may increase your risk of prostate cancer. It is not a good idea to, to give it in people with prostate cancer, but it's probably okay in people with BPH. It's probably not going to cause issues. And if it does, you can just stop it, especially if it's going to help their quality of life. The other thing I actually read is it may be associated with breast cancer, so you want to avoid giving to people with breast cancer. It's rare to get breast cancer in men, though it does happen. It's quite hard to catch, and usually those people are very sick and, um, and because it's hard to catch, but it's something to, again, remember. And the last thing I would add, uh, coming from a background in fertility, is it does it may affect spermatogenesis. Because you're sort of giving exogenous testosterone, so it may decrease spermatogenesis. It is not a good idea to give testosterone therapy to, to men who are uh, trying to conceive unless they have an issue, as you said, like a hypogonadism, where it might help with spermatogenesis. Mm-hmm. So to summarize, the big one is really erythrocytosis, I think, though consider that there's some cardiac risk, some risk of prostate cancer, maybe, some risk of BPH, Maybe. And you mentioned sleep apnea. So they looked at sleep apnea as well? I found that there was a small correlation between testosterone therapy and sleep apnea. I I didn't know that. So something to consider when you're talking to your patients who have sleep apnea, that they notice that their sleep apnea is getting worse and they need to titrate machines there. It might be the testosterone therapy causing it. Okay, so we have the risks. We have the benefits. So let's say you have a patient coming in, they're a good candidate, you know, they have sexual dysfunction, their testosterone levels are low. We talked about the levels back in the last podcast. Before you would start therapy, what would you order? So before beginning, as we mentioned earlier, the prostate cancer is a is an issue that you want to avoid. So on physical exam before initiating therapy, you want to do a DRE to rule out a prostate nodule. And you want to do three labs blood work. You want to look for the PSA, you want to look for the hematocrit, and you want to evaluate the lipids as well. Excellent. So remember those three things. Three things. So one physical exam, a DRE, because you don't want to miss a nodule, obviously, and three and three tests. You said PSA, you said lipids because of the cardiovascular risk, though lipids you'd be doing anyways, most men at that age, and you said hematocrit. Okay. So those are very important, and you start those before initiating, how soon after would you repeat 
some of those tests. Like, oh, how soon after would you pick the hematocrit if you initiate therapy? So the hematocrit is in it is repeated three to six months after the initiation okay. of therapy. Yeah, that's probably a good good thing. And the PSA, I guess you would repeat it depending on the, the number. If it's normal, you may want to repeat it in six months. The lipids, well, the lipids, when would you repeat the lipids? Three to six months again. Yeah, three to six months. If they're normal, the, when you first do them, maybe six, three to six months. Is, and if they're still normal, then you can do it every year, whatever your approach is with the lipids at that time. Okay, so that makes sense. We look at lipids, we look at PSA, we look at the hematocrit. Hematocrit, what's the what's the target number? 50%. 50%, some say 54, some say 48. 50 is a good number between those two, so I'd say 50. That, that's how I approach my trans patients anyways. And you start that, you start the therapy. There's different forms for testosterone therapy, and they each have their advantages and disadvantages. So what are the some, some ways you can prescribe it, uh, Eric? So one of the cheap ways to prescribe it is oral therapy, andriol, and this can cause GI upsets and absorption issues, however. Yes. So, so it's always with oral, it's the absorption problem. But it is, I think, one of the cheapest ways to prescribe it. Um, so oral is number one. What, what other ways can you, uh, can you prescribe it? The other means is through a patch, um, and that's applied daily. There's less risk of person-to-person transfer. However, one has to consider that this can be expensive, and it can cause contact dermatitis where the patch is applied. Yeah, just like the ever patch, you know, and, and one of the most common complaints for that for the pa- any type of patch really is, is, is in fact contact dermatitis. Now, when you say person-to-person transfer, what do you mean, Eric? So in terms of person-to-person transfer, if your child, for example, rubs up against the gel and it's transferred to their bloodstream, then that can cause issues for them or other individuals. So having a patch that doesn't rub off compared to a gel, it's actually advantageous to reduce that risk. Yeah, I mean, the risk is not huge. I mean, it's, not, it's not a big risk. But, you know, if you have, if you have young children and, and you don't necessarily do a good job at, at making sure the gel is absorbed, they will absorb the testosterone. They will absorb it and they might have some issues, especially if they're too young or if they're, if they're female. They, they, can, they can cause issues. So it, it, is a, it is a thing to look for. And the patch pretty much eliminates it. So does oral. The problem with oral, again, is it's just poorly absorbed, in my opinion. So we, we talked about the patch. By the way, the patch is called androderm. You mentioned the gel. What's the name of the gel formulation? The gel is called androgel. Um, and it does have an odor. However, yes, it does. Important to note. Yes. Um, and it can also have the person-to-person transfer we discussed. However, there's less risk of contact dermatitis. Yeah, it's a lot less. It's, it's a lot of patients actually like the gel because it's easy to apply and it rarely causes any, any issues. And, you know, if you're dealing with older people that have no children around them, it's, it's not an issue. And as long as they wash themselves, it's, it's okay usually. So we have the gel. It's called Androgel. And uh, we have another type of gel that goes through another, um, goes in another way. And what's that? So I think you're referring to the nasal gel. Yeah. Otherwise known uh, brand name Natesto. Yeah. And this is a really good absorption. However, you have to use it multiple times a day, and this can actually cause rhinorrhea. Yeah, so it's uh, like a lot of things going through the nose is one of the better ways of going through things. So really good absorption, but as you said, sometimes it causes rhinorrhea, and you have to make sure you don't blow your nose after doing the job because then you've lost all the testosterone. The, the final one I'll talk about a bit because I do that a lot with, with trans patients is the injection, and we use the, la- the latistrol. 
You can do it IM or sub-Q. It's usually set says IM, but sub-Q is fine. Really good absorption. It's actually, the ch- I think, the cheapest method. Um, but it somebody has to do it. And not everybody likes needles. Do you like to give yourself needles every week? No, of no, course not. Of course. I mean, I don't. Who does it? So do you have to do it? Uh, and sometimes you have to need help. It can cause some issues around the ejection sites. And it does have the highest risk of erythrocytosis of all the methods. So uh, just 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 be aware. And But in fact, I would say it's the best absorption, though most people go for the gel. Most people actually go for the gel. Some people may want to do the injection as well. So we talked about the treatment types. You said the treatment interval should be every three to six months, right? Then it stabilizes. You do it every... Every year. Yeah, every year, every 12 months, maybe every 18 months. Um, when do you... Because you mentioned something about the PSA, right? So when would you start worrying about the PSA going up? Like what's what what kind of increase would you want? Would you would worry you where you might say maybe we should stop the therapy or talk to your role? Just So you have to start being concerned when you see an increase of PSA levels greater than 1.4 nanograms per milliliter above baseline or if the total value is greater than four. And this would merit a urologic uh, follow-up. You may have to stop the testosterone therapy at that time, especially if it's over four. Again, discussion with the patient is is important, and you have to know how long it takes to see the urologist, but that's probably a good thing. The hematocrit, we talked about the cutoff. We're not going to repeat it one more time. Well, let's repeat it one more time. 50%, right? 50%. 50%. And anything else you should look for? I mean, lipids, I suppose. Lipids, but again, the the evidence itself is not very clear uh, on that. So I guess if I have to summarize, I'll say what my three take takeout points are. Maybe you could say yours, but mine is it's appropriate for patients who have an actual primary secondary cause of of their testosterone issues. It works great specifically for sexual dysfunction. That's the big one. And testing should be done every three, three, six months after initiating. And you're looking at the PSA, the hematocrit, and the lipids. Anything else you want to add to that? I would say always want to evaluate it on a case-by-case basis for individual patients. For initiation, you want to do that DRE and ensure that there's no uh, prostate nodules. And always... Keep an open line of communication with your patient and ensure that they're seeing uh, positive responses and that they're doing everything safely. Actually, that's really good. So you, you ask them, well, what do you expect from this therapy? And they say, well, I want better sexual function. Then ask them, okay, has it worked? Because if it hasn't, what's the point in taking it? So that I think we'll finish with that. That was quite informative. And again, the anemia was completely out of left field. I didn't even know it was, it was used for that. So it's something to consider in my practice. And maybe now we can, we can go to part two, which is to talk about the COVID crisis and how it affected medical students. So you're, you're, a, you're a student at McGill, right? I didn't make it clear. So tell me a bit about what happened. Like, what happened to you? What happened to you guys? Oh, man. Well, it's like a film almost. Right. We went to work as usual on the Friday and everything was fine and dandy. And then that evening when we all got home, we actually received an email from the faculty And they told us that they had been informed by the Minister of Health of Quebec that we actually wouldn't be allowed to go back until further notice. It was very sudden, very unexpected. And to be honest, we all weren't sure what to expect moving forward. 
my colleagues were under the impression that it would only last a couple of weeks, and here we are, right. three months later. Right. Well, more than three months now. Actually, yeah, I guess it's been almost four months. Are you guys going back? What's what's happening now? Not. So we're actually we've returned now mm-hmm. um, as of Ju- June first. Okay. So you've been um, back for a while. Okay, good. Yeah. So it feels good. You start to realize that your life really revolves around medicine. And when you don't have that as a medical student, you start to go a little stir crazy. <laughs> stir crazy. Yeah. What, do you, what were you guys doing during those, during those three months of quarantine? Like, Did you have any, any courses or was it completely stopped? So certain rotations made an effort to ensure that students were having some sort of online teaching. Right. In pediatrics, students were having chief of service rounds and they were having uh, case discussions going on. So that was very proactive of the faculty to do that. And then we also had a fourth year course normally done towards the end of the curriculum that was done online now um, known as PIAT or putting it all together. Okay. And so that was actually interesting. It was a nice opportunity to review certain subjects such as uh, electrolytes and and, uh, physiology, Mm -hmm. electrolyte physiology. And so that was very good returning to clinic to have a stronger backbone in that. Some other, my colleagues had um, anatomy classes online. So it was very informative in that respect. And then we also had a sociology course mixed in with this and sort of Gave us an opportunity to look at to look at the human side of medicine mm-hmm. that we often discuss at the beginning of medical school, but as you move further on through your years, it's lost further. Yeah, I guess further further away. Uh, so, did you find? I'm curious because I have I'm starting teaching McGill. I have to give courses in a couple of months, September, and I have to do it online. Did you find the online teaching challenging, or did you did you did you think it was it was fine? What did you what did you what is your opinion about online teaching? I think it's a very effective tool given the situation and the necessity for it. I think at times you miss that in-person interaction which stimulates and engages a learner. Right. You totally miss out on that in this in online courses. How big was your class? So it would depend. We're in three different cohorts right. of 185, so roughly 60 students 60 per cohort. Students. Okay, so that I mean, you, you, it's nice. It's not too big. It's not too small. Uh, when you were doing the online courses, was it pre-recorded or was it happening live? It was live. Okay, we actually had live. So you had 60 people watching the exactly. Oh my god, and it went, would... went okay. No like bandwidth issues or like the internet tubes smiled on you. Surprisingly, okay. we were very lucky. <laughs> Zoom, good. there's a reason Zoom is doing very well, well as a company yes. now. <laughs> <laughs> so certainly, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, McGill's all about all about Zoom. That we had a lot of training uh, to get ready for September. Um, so you guys are actually going back in a staggered fashion. Is that correct? So what does that what does that mean? A staggered fashion. What's what's the what's been the plan, McGill? So essentially, when you have a large group of students and you have a fixed number of hospital sites. Everyone goes where they're, where they're assigned. However, now in Montreal, given that it's a hot spot, some hospitals that are affiliated with McGill, such as the Jewish General, has been designated a COVID center. Mm-hmm. And as such, as medical students, we're actually not allowed to be involved in the treatment or diagnosis of okay, COVID right. uh, confirmed or suspected cases. And as such, that means essentially you have to fit the same number of students into 
three quarters the amount of designated clinic area. Oh, wow. So to counter that, they've actually used this so-called staggered approach. And essentially what it is is that students are doing two weeks or four weeks at a time and then two weeks off. And this allows students to, A, not be overcrowded within the limited number of sites. And then secondly, it encourages students who may have symptoms or who potentially test positive for COVID to not fear that they're going to fall behind because they have this two-week period built into right, their schedule. Right, to, to have you had any cases in your class, if, if you don't mind me saying? Not that I'm aware okay, of. Okay. So you, you're doing the staggered return and uh, it's going well. But my question to you is, is, is your year been, been um, stretched out? Like, is it going to be a longer year to get everything in? Or are they still doing a third year and finishes when it's supposed to finish? How, how are they doing that? So we were initially supposed to finish our third year July 1st. Okay. Clearly that Clearly day has passed. The day has passed, yes. But now the, uh, the plan is such that we will finish our third year by mid-October and then begin our fourth year then. Normally, in fourth year, we have electives and we have um, the faculty is doing the best that they can to ensure that we have as many elective weeks as possible to ensure that we get as much exposure to various specialties to help people decide in terms of career paths what they would like to do. Mm -hmm. But we also have reduced vacation time that we would normally have. McGill prided itself on the idea of having allocated time for us to to prepare our CARMS applications, to prepare for our interviews, which now has all been removed. Mm -hmm. And CARMS dates have actually been pushed back as well. Oh, okay. I hadn't heard about that. Mm -hmm. And so now we're no longer going to be matching March 1st, but later on in March or mid-April. And so it's going to be tough. And we also are going to have online interviews as a result of this. Oh, no. And some students are very upset. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. I Actually, I did hear about that because I think McGill... Well, no, McMaster, had they had done their medical student interviews online and it had not been very good experience because of a lot of technical issues. But it, you guys will be going through that as well. Mm-hmm. It saves you travel, I suppose. Exactly. It saves us travel... Unfortunately, given the lack of visiting electives as well now, students are not going to have an opportunity to see various programs from A, the lack of visiting electives, but also B, not doing in-person interviews. You can't get a tour of the school. You can't get a chance to meet with residents or staff. So it's really going to be sort of a shot in the dark when we're applying to various residency programs. You can't really get a good feel of 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 what's happening you just have to okay yeah that's that's a that's quite so it's got challenging so tell me how 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 you guys been dealing with all this physically mentally like what's been the the mood of yourself your colleagues it's very strange i mean the majority of students are used to being busy all the time whether it's class clinical duties volunteering or extracurriculars <laughs> you know there's always something going on right right and now suddenly we have nothing to do. It's a very strange and abnormal situation to be in. So, so I heard you guys have been trying to do some volunteering programs just to keep sane. Can you tell me about those a bit? For sure. It's, it's great initiatives. And there's certain groups of medical students in various cities across the country that have been organizing them. Some initiatives are such that they're providing meals for healthcare professionals or babysitting them, uh, babysitting for them because daycares have been closed. 
other colleagues have been, you know, selflessly volunteering in long term long term care homes, and I really respect and take my hat right, off to them. Right, to, to, to offer a bit of bit of human touch to to people being stuck in those homes, it's it's horrible. So so it's good. You have to do stuff to keep saying. It's actually been the same with doctors. I've had some extra time personally. I've just spent it with the kids. And it's, it's been it's been great in many ways, but it it is odd not to be busy as a in the health profession. It, it's sort of a strange feeling. And just before we finish off, has this ever happened before? Like, did, not to you, but has this type of thing happened before? Well, there was the SARS pandemic in um, two thousand and three. Were you born back then? I was. I okay. was a, a whole nine years old. <laughs> I had to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> and they were actually sent home for six weeks. So, yeah, very different than what's been happening. It's just dragging on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I remember the stars. I was in Toronto. I was in Ottawa, so I, was, I wasn't affected. But, no. yeah, I guess people were expecting that was going to happen. It's just it's just been dragging on and on and on. So, given that's been happening, what are some other struggles that you, you and your cohort is dealing with? You have the fact that you don't have anything to do and that... Matching is, is going to be really hard and choosing the right progress is going to be really hard. Anything else that you've noticed in, in your cohort as a struggle? Well, certain colleagues I've spoken to have actually been struggling with the social isolation, many of which have been suffering from depression and anxiety right. as a result of isolation and all the stress that's incurred by the situation. And this has all been compounded by the stress of medical school and now the matching process, um, which has all been amplified by COVID. There's also this fear that programs will ask, how have you made good use of this time? And they'll consider it as if free time that you should have used to be productive. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So you guys have, uh, like, you guys are, are afraid that, that they might ask you during interviews, like, what did you do during the COVID crisis? Exactly. Interesting. I didn't think of that. Exactly. And so, you know, some students who organize these volunteering programs, which I applaud and respect, they they are going to be able to speak about that. However, other students are not necessarily in a position to be able to do so. They themselves or family members whom they live with may be you know compromised or elderly, and therefore they're afraid to leave their homes and go volunteer. And they feel that they mm-hmm. may be disadvantaged as a result of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the idea of like some people have the privilege to volunteer, but some people do not, and hopefully it doesn't affect their their application. I, we talked a bit about about this before we started, but your big worry is the mental health problems that are going to be shown after after the new normal, whenever that is. What do you, what are you some what are some things that you think will happen with mental health? Like, what are you some of the things you've seen? I've spoken to certain colleagues who have been really isolated in their bubble and and suffering from real depression, right? Um, and not able to find motivation to get out of bed in the morning. It's that bad. Losing yeah. weight, um, not losing appetite. It's it's a very tough situation when your whole life revolves around not just medical school, but social outlets in terms of stress outlets, going to the gym or right. going to a spinning class right. or doing other activities that now have all been closed. And I think this applies to not just medical students, but the general public. Everyone, everyone. Yeah, especially if this happened in a way during a very nice summer. And imagine like being stuck at home. Now, introverts, I guess it's not a big deal, but for extroverts, it must be really, really hard. So is, is there anything else you, you want to add before we, before we close off here? Well, just lastly is that social media in today's society has created this false pretext where individuals should have been using this time to learn a new hobby or take on a new skill. 
But in reality, this time off is because of a pandemic. It's not necessarily an opportunity to polish off our extracurriculars. Right. And therefore, if people are not doing this, they get this false sense of inadequacy where they're just simply trying to stay at home and stay afloat in the day-to-day -day life. Whether and, and their friends are facing on uh, on Instagram or on Facebook that they've done this course or that course or doing this and that. So it actually makes things worse for them, right? That's And it amplifies... Social media applies these things. I didn't think of that either. That's an interesting thing. I, I didn't know there was this, all this pressure to be productive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I believe globally that while we may be capable of curtailing the chaos of COVID-19, we'll ultimately end up unraveling and creating more suffering as a result of mental health than we initially suspected. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. It's The situation is ongoing. Things are sort of picking up again, unfortunately, where we're at. Um, we'll see, but... You know, Eric, I really appreciate giving your perspective and talking about testosterone therapy and talking about this. And I wish every, all, every student, medical student, all the best and all the luck. It's uh, never seen anything like this. That's, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And again, I want to wish all my colleagues the best during this difficult time and know that we'll all get through it together one way or another. Sure. Take, take care, guys.